This message was presented at the GYC 2011 conference. For other resources like this, visit us online at gycweb.org. Our Father in heaven, we praise you and we thank you for the privilege and the opportunity to come together as brothers and sisters in Christ. It is our desire that this will not be another conference. Lord, we talk so much about finishing the work, but heaven is waiting for somebody to finally do what they say. And Lord, my hope, my desire, is that through the power of your Holy Spirit, that you will stimulate minds and hearts in these meetings. And not just this meeting here, Lord, all the meetings, all the different speakers, Lord. We, we all consecrate ourselves before you at this time. And Lord, I pray that something dynamic and wonderful beyond our expectations would take place as a result of humanity and divinity becoming one. And so we pray, please, forgive us of our sins. Cleanse us from all unrighteousness. May you truly teach us how to be holy and help us to look to Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. For we trust that by beholding him, we shall become changed into the same image. Bless and keep us now, we pray. Take our lives and let it be consecrated, Lord, to thee. Is our prayer we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, one of the things you're going to find is that when, when you're doing a study like this, our general theme is going to be dealing with the topic, preparation for the latter rain. That, that's, that's the general theme. We're going to talk about the prophetic significance of the early and latter rain, the outpouring of God's Holy Spirit. You're going to find that many scriptures and quotations I'll share with you are things that you perhaps have heard or studied at some point in your life. But the, by the grace of God, we want to make it all connect that it can make sense and most importantly be practical. Because a practical gospel is what God's people need right now. More than anything else, we need to be able to hear the message in such a way that we can actually apply what we've learned and not just become a bunch of intellectual giants and go from being ignorant sinners to intelligent sinners. That's not the goal. That's not heaven's goal. Man may have that goal, but not heaven. So therefore, we want to make sure that God can show us how to go from being ignorant sinners to intelligent saints of God. That's the goal. And so we're going to go ahead and study and we're going to take a look at these topics here. And as a movement, God has called us to do something and it's found in Revelation chapter 10. So I want you to turn your Bibles to the book of Revelation chapter 10. If you want to understand the very history and foundation of the Seventh Day Adventist Church, you will find that while Revelation 12 tells us wonderful things, and while Revelation 14 tells us wonderful things, and while Revelation 18 tells us wonderful things, it is in Revelation chapter 10 where we find our foundation. And in Revelation the 10th chapter, you'll notice that the Bible tells us something. It was after the great disappointment that we understand to have taken place in what year? In 1844. Now, this is where Revelation 10, it talks about sweet in the mouth, bitter in the belly. It was an amazing experience for God's people. They were going through a wonderful time. They thought Jesus was going to come. He did not come. And then after they realized Jesus did not come, they went through a horrific disappointment. But you know the story. After that disappointment, they were able to come out of it by searching the scriptures again. And when they searched the scriptures, they began to see that they did make a mistake. And what was that mistake? They misunderstood that term, cleansing the sanctuary. They thought the sanctuary was the earth, but as a result of study directed by God's Spirit, they realized that the sanctuary was not earth, but that there was a sanctuary where? In heaven. And as they looked into that sanctuary and they began to see that in that most holy place, there was that wonderful ark that contained the law of God, and that's how they came to an understanding that God is calling us in these last days to keep his commandments, to fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. And when they came to that understanding, they no longer were just in the experience of the first and second angel's message, but now they began to understand the third angel's message. And so Revelation 10 and verse 11 clearly says, 
As they understood this, God now brought to their attention where he says in verse 11, read it with me, and he said unto me, thou must do what? Prophesy again before many peoples and nations and tongues and kings. And so it is that now we are no longer simply living in the time of the first and second angel's message, but we are especially living in the time of the what? Third angel's message. We're going to talk about that. And so we are now in that time of the wonderful herald of the third angel's message, which we will see encompasses the first and the second. Now, I want you to go ahead and look at me, look with me to Revelation 14. In Revelation, the 14th chapter, we're going to just briefly look over that third angel's message because you're going to find that that's the focus. You're going to find that that's the focus, that third angel's message. And remember, the third angel's message does not negate the first two. It is inclusive of the first two. So when we talk about the third angel's message, we're not talking about excluding the other two. Amen? All right. It encompasses all. Let's look at it very quickly. Revelation 14, verse 9. Many of us, I'm sure, can repeat it, but what's more important than repeating Scripture is experiencing Scripture. The Bible says in Revelation 14, 9, it says, we can read it together, it says, And the third angel followed them, saying with a loud voice, If any man worship the beast in his image, and receive his mark in his forehead or in his hand, the same shall drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out without mixture into the cup of his indignation. And he shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment ascendeth up forever and ever. And they have no rest day nor night who worship the beast in his image. And whosoever receiveth the mark of his name, here is the patience of the saints. Here are they that keep the commandments of God and have the faith of Jesus. It should be yours and my determination to be counted Amongst that number. Amen? All right. Now, understanding that the third angel's message, this is the herald that is to go out. And we just looked at it in brief. But I want you to see something now in Revelation 13 that gives us a little bit more of a picture of what this third angel was talking about. In Revelation, the 13th chapter, we now go to verse 1, where the Bible lets us know something. Remember, in Revelation 13, verses 1 to 3, we're going to see something. Watch this. Are we there? Revelation 13, 1 to 3. The Bible says, And I stood upon the sand of the sea, and I saw a beast rise up out of the sea, having seven heads and ten horns, and upon his horns ten crowns, and upon his heads the name of blasphemy. And the beast which I saw was like unto a leopard, and his feet were as the feet of a bear, and his mouth as the mouth of a lion. And the dragon gave him his power and his seat and great authority. Now look at verse 3. Verse 3 says, And I saw one of his heads as it were what? Wounded to death. And then what happened to the wound? It says the deadly wound was healed. And how many? It says all the world wandered after the beast. Now, brothers and sisters, I don't know about you, but that's startling. Because for John to say all the world wandered after the beast, based on my understanding of all, that means every single one of you are going to get the mark of the beast, including me. Because it says, how much of the world? All the world. Now, this is strange. Because you have a third angel's message that's telling everybody, don't receive the mark. But then you have John, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, saying that all the world is going to wonder after the beast. So my question is, how do we reconcile these two? There's two numbers we're going to all be counted amongst. We're either going to be counted amongst those who wonder after the beast or those who keep the commandments of God and have the faith of Jesus. So one of the first things that I need to know is how can I make sure that I'm not part of that all that will wonder after the beast? Would you agree? Don't you think that that, that, that should be a burden? I don't care if you're 10 years old or 100 years old. That should be the great burden of every single one of us. Lord, how can I make sure I'm not part of those who wonder after the beast, but I'm part of those who keep the commandments of God and have the faith of Jesus? Wouldn't you agree? Now, how can you make sure you're not part of those who wonder after the beast? And if somebody were to ask you the question, how can you biblically explain who is it that's really going to wonder after the beast and then that way understand how I can biblically not wonder after the beast? If somebody were to ask you that question, have you ever thought about this question? The Bible says all the world 
We are part of all the world. But we know that there needs to be an experience amongst God's people where we do not wonder. How can we make sure? Go to the book of Revelation 17. Let me show you a secret. Revelation, the 17th chapter. You see, it's kind of like when, you know, a husband and wife get into a disagreement. And when the husband and wife get into a disagreement, they get to a point where either the husband or the wife shares to, somebody, shares to one of the other and says, dear, honey, or whatever terms of endearment that you use, they say, dear, you always do that. Now, when, when that husband says, honey, you always do that, or when the wife says, honey, you always do that, is it true that they always do that? No, but they do it so often that it seems like it's almost always, right? So you'll find that in the Bible, there are many a times where God uses language where it makes it sound like it's all-inclusive, but then there are other times where God says, well, let me really explain what I meant here. I really didn't mean all like everybody, but here's what I meant. And here we find in Revelation, the 17th chapter, what God meant when he said all the world wondered after the beast. Let me show you who the all the world really is. The Bible says in Revelation 17 and verse 8, and if you're there, say amen. The Bible says in Revelation 17 and verse 8, it says the beast that thou sawest was and is not and shall ascend out of the bottomless pit and go into perdition. Watch this now. Look at the next sentence. And they that dwell on the earth shall... Wonder. So what are these people wondering after? The beast. So do we see a correlation between this group here in Revelation 17:8 and those in Revelation 13:3? All right. Look at the next sentence. What does it say about those who wonder after this beast? It says whose names are not written in the book of life. So the qualifier of those who will wonder after the beast is that it is those whose names are not written in the book of life. So what do you think is one of the most important questions that you would need to have answered? Sweet, isn't it? Brothers and sisters, there was a time that when God's people would meet together in worship and holy convocations like this. Do you know that when the convocation was over? Instead of them bidding each other farewell and just saying, bye, see you at next GYC, or, you know, take care, see you at the next meeting, you know what they would say to each other? When they depart one from another, they would say, brother, sister, it was good seeing you. May your name remain. I want you to imagine, what if at this conference, that was our language? That when we talk to each other, when we embrace each other, and when we, when we hold each other, pray with each other, and encourage each other, that whenever the point comes where we have to now depart from this blessed experience in this convocation, we say, listen, it was wonderful seeing you. Listen, may your name remain. Amen. Because there's going to be a lot of people whose names will not remain in that book of life. And those are the ones who will wonder after the beast. And so I think we need to find out how in the world can I make sure that my name remains? Would you agree that that's an important question? Oh, yeah. That's the crucial question. And do you know that God loves us so much that he says, do you think that I would leave you in mystery? Great Controversy 598 tells us that we have a chart that points out every waymark on the heavenward journey, and you and I don't have to guess at anything. I can know. How can I know if my name remains? You want to know how? Go to the book of Revelation chapter 3. Revelation chapter 3, how can I find out if my name shall remain? You see, Satan's whole mission is to put enough pressure on the people of God through what is called the final crisis so that their names will not remain. Satan looks back and he says, oh, you had a good old experience. You know, most Seventh-day Adventists, we talk a lot about the experiences we used to have. We talk about when we was on fire for Jesus. There's very few people who can talk present tense and say, you know, I love the Lord more than I ever have before. There's very few people that could say, you know what, I used to be a flicker, but now I'm a flame for Jesus. There's very few people who can speak like that. And Satan says, I'm succeeding. I'm going to take the name out. I'm going to get them to fall into my trap. 
But God says, no, I have a formula. I'm going to show you how you can, your name can remain. You want to know how he shows it? Revelation chapter 3. Now, verse 5 spells it out so clear that we can't miss it. In Revelation 3 and verse 5, the Bible says, he that what? All right. So the Bible says, he that overcometh, the same shall be clothed in white raiment. And look at the next beautiful sentence. It says, and I will not blot out his name out of the book of life, but I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. The Bible says you need to overcome. Jesus says, listen, if you overcome, your name remains. If you fail and keep failing and keep failing and get stuck in failure, your name removes. You see, when Christ moves into that most holy place of the heavenly sanctuary, brothers and sisters, there's only one of two things that's going to happen. Either Acts 3.19 or Exodus 32 and verse 33. Only those two verses, that's it. In Acts 3.19, it says, Repent ye therefore and be converted that your sins may be blotted out. But in Exodus 32, you remember when, 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 when the children of Israel were in apostasy and Moses came before God as an intercessor and he said, Father, please forgive them and if not, blot my name out of the book of life. And then in verse 33, God says, no. He says, he who sinned, him will I blot out. So only the, that, that, those are the two events that encompasses that third angel's message. Either our names remain and sins get blotted out or our sins remain and our names get blotted out. That's it. And it does not matter if you're 10, year, 10 years old or 100 years old. That's it. And so the great goal of God's people is, Lord, how can I overcome? Do you see how this question and answer session, we're just, we're just going down a pattern. Now, I want to show you something because Satan has put together his trap. You see, when we look at this issue with the mark of the beast, we understand that a time is going to come where a national Sunday law is going to be passed first in America and then to spread throughout the world, upon which Satan is now going to have an image to the beast, a setting up of church and state coming together to oppress God's people, to stamp upon God's truth. You and I, under the banner of the third angel's message, are to be preparing for that. And I remember when I was reading a little news article and it talked about preparation for the final crisis and it talked about crisis or Christ. Which one should we be looking for? And I didn't appreciate that question. Because to me it was silly. Of course our focus should be on Jesus. Amen? But Jesus himself said, prepare for the crisis. And so, brothers and sisters, what really is the case is that those who are prepared for the final crisis are those who are prepared for the second coming of Jesus Christ. It's that simple. And those who are unprepared for that final crisis are those who will be unprepared for the second coming of Jesus Christ. To go through Sabbath school lessons, to go through divine hour sessions, to go through midweek prayer services, and to go through morning and evening devotions and not have in the forefront of our minds, Lord, prepare us for this final crisis, is deadly. We say, oh, we want to talk about the love of Jesus. Jesus says, I love you so much that I want to be with you. And I cannot save you in sin. I can only save you from sin. And so Christ says, I need you to prepare. I need you to enter into an experience with me so that you and I can get victory over this thing and you can overcome and your name remains and you and I are together forever. It's logical. Victory over sin is logical. It is biblically logical. And so this needs to be the great experience. And Satan says, I have put together not just pop quizzes. Satan says, I have put together not just, just little quick tests. Satan says, I have a final test that I'm going to bring to the people of God. And God's going to allow it to happen. And that is none other than that mark of the beast. And there's a way that is going to build up. Now, I want you to keep this in mind. I want you to look at something here. Let's see if uh, 
My little friend here is working. Okay, you are working. Good. Now, Rome, you saw that Rome, Rome is going to suffer a deadly wound, but the wound is going to eventually receive healing. And all the world, the Bible says, will wonder after this beast. Now, when we look at Rome, who's going to be the chief instrument? Before we look at that, who's going to be the chief instrument who's going to bring, who's going to be the doctor to Rome? None other than the United States of America. That's that second beast. In Revelation 13, starting at verse 1 and verse 2, it talks about, I'm sorry, in verse 11 and 12, it talks about this second beast coming up out of the earth, and it says that it will point everybody back to the first beast. So the role of the United States of America, as, as, as privileged and, and thankful that I am to enjoy the freedoms and so on that I have in this country, I understand that while this country may have risen up with two horns like a lamb, it is preparing to speak like a dragon. I understand that. I have to, as a child of prophecy, I have to see that. And there's only one way a dragon speaks. You know how a dragon speaks, right? You know how a dragon speaks? How does a dragon speak? Huh? With a loud voice? Where's that in the Bible? Go to Revelation chapter 12. Let me show you how a dragon speaks. There's only one way a dragon speaks. So, so when, when you look at this, this wonderful country that we have, and I'm thankful that we still have leaders who, who, whose hearts have been surrendered to Jesus Christ. They're living up to the light as best as they understand it. And God has men and women who love him even in government. And we need to be praying for those individuals because they too need to come out when that loud cry comes to them. But the Bible says in Revelation chapter 12, notice right here, verse 13. How does the dragon speak? It says, and when the dragon, Revelation 12, verse 13, and when the dragon saw that he was cast unto the earth, what did he do? He persecuted the woman which brought forth the man-child. How does the dragon speak? By persecuting. That's how a dragon expresses his language. That's how he speaks. He doesn't roar. He doesn't just make loud, empty noises. What he does is he persecutes. So that this beast that has these two horns like a lamb, but we are told will eventually speak like a dragon, is this beast, brothers and sisters, that ultimately is going to come together as a result of church and state and once again become a persecuting power. It's going to become a persecuting power. That, that is the future. So every time you look at these anti-terrorist laws, these patriot laws, 9-11, you look at all those things and how everything is coming together, that more and more rights are being removed, October, 20, October 17, 2006, habeas corpus removed, all these different rights are being removed where people can be put in prison under suspect and they can't even get a fair trial. All of these things are leading ultimately to that mark of the beast. That's all it's doing. It's just leading there. Now... Rome always had a method of how they eventually would get Sunday laws passed, and they're going to spread, they've been spreading this message, method, and America's joining in cahoots with it very strongly. Now, I'm just going to share a few slides with you on this because I think this is important. When we look at this, this was put together in 1999. You remember Diaz Domini, when uh, Pope John Paul II, when he put together in 1999, and he talked about everybody coming back to Sunday worship. Well, what he said was the method that I thought was interesting, is it says, when through the centuries she has made laws concerning Sunday rest, the church has had in mind above all the work of servants and workers. Certainly not because this work was any less worthy when compared to the spiritual requirements of Sunday observance, but rather because it needed greater regulation to lighten its burdens and thus enable everyone to keep the Lord's day holy. So I want you to see the way that Rome normally in their practice would pass Sunday laws. The way that they would do it is they would focus on the work of servants and workers. They would focus on people and the stresses and the challenges that they're going through, and then they would show them, hey, you need some time to rest. You need some time with your family. You need some time away. So they did not come saying, this is a Sunday law and you need to do it or else. They didn't start it like that. They would come real innocent and just say, listen, don't you want to spend more time with your family? I mean, it's a bad economy right now, and people are stressed out, blood pressure, everything's going crazy. Don't you think that you all should have a time that you can rest and relax? It's going to become very logical. And that was their method. Now, look. He says, therefore, also, in the particular circumstances of our own time, Christians will naturally strive to ensure that civil legislation respects their duty to keep Sunday holy. So he made it clear. You, 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 you so-called followers of Christ, what you need to do is strive and go to law and tell them, make Sunday laws. So that's what he said. Now, what's interesting is September 27, 2010, Vatican City. 
they actually did that. They started to give the push once again under Benedict. And it says, the Holy See Press Office Cardinal Emilio Antonelli, President of the Pontifical Council for the Family, presented Benedict XVI's letter for the Seventh World Meeting of Families, which is due to be held in the Italian city of Milan from the 30th of May to the 2nd of June when? 2012. That's right around the corner. Notice that it is a focus on the family. I wonder what he wants to do. He says the family work and rest. Interesting. It says work and rest, writes, Pope, writes the Pope in his letter, are intimately associated with the life of families. They influence the choices the family makes, the relationship between the spouses and among parents and children, and they affect the dealings the family has with society and with the church. They go on to say, and I thought that this final piece right here was very interesting. It says, it is therefore necessary to reflect and commit ourselves to reconciling the demands and requirements of work with those of the family and to recover the true significance of rest, especially on Sundays, the weekly Easter, the day of the Lord, and the day of man, the day of the family, of the community, and of solidarity. So they're pushing it. This is just simply Revelation 13 live. Are you following? All right, now, July 19th, 2011. It says, Sunday should be a day for worship, rest, and time with family and friends, said Monsignor Miguel Delgado Calindo, under Secretary of the Pontifical Council for the Laity. So do you see that their focus, remember, Pope John Paul said, our method always has been to pass Sunday laws to focus on workers and the family. He's, that, that was their method. We see the method being put in practice. I'm bringing you right up to speed. And I'm going to take you past July 2011. Now, it says, we need to realize that we need more time with family and friends. It is hard to give them time during the week because of our professional and social commitments, he noted. Sunday rest is a human necessity. So they're agitating. Now, in 2009, the Pope called for a new financial order focusing on ethics. That was in 2009. Because think about it. If a time is going to come when man couldn't even buy or sell anymore, except they receive the mark of the beast, wouldn't it make sense that obviously somebody needs to control the money? In order to make that real, somebody has to have control of the money, right? All right. So therefore, that's, what we're, that's what's happening. They said, look, we need to do this. They, they presented a proposal to the United Nations. Hey, we need to go ahead and do this. And that was in 2009. But then, brothers and sisters, I want you to notice something. October 24, 2011, the Vatican calls for Central World Bank to be set up. The reason I'm sharing this with you is because some of us, especially as young people, we come to church and, you know, I don't know what you're hearing, first of all, because I'm not in your church. So I don't know what you're hearing. But I know you need to be hearing this. I know you need to understand these things. Because there's a natural tendency inside of us that we know and have been exposed to a lot of truths, but we have this tomorrow mentality. Which is basically, yeah, I know that it's coming, and yeah, I know I need to prepare, and I'll do it tomorrow. And that's why one of the greatest issues you're going to find with the five foolish virgins, Ellen White says that they were not hypocrites, but they were professional procrastinators. They weren't hypocrites, but they knew that there was something that needs to be done, but they kept putting it off. And this is the only reason why ministers need to, come at time and time again, not to make their whole ministry focusing on, on, on all these different things, but brothers and sisters, there's times where we have to make people aware, ladies and gentlemen, this thing is real. It's real. Now, the reason why this becomes very important to me is because I want you to notice something. Do you know that this was literally the picture that they put in the newspaper? They put a whole bunch of dollar bills inside the Bible. And they said, the Vatican called on Monday for the establishment of a global public authority and a central world bank to rule over financial institutions that have become outdated and often ineffective in dealing fairly with crisis. And I just wish that I could share with you all the different articles, brothers and sisters. This thing is real. This is why we are told that when the Sunday law passes, there are going to be many seven-day Adventists who are going to be swept away to the point that it actually tells us it'll be a large class and a great majority. Do you know, brothers and sisters, that when that Sunday law passes, I'm telling you right now, write this down for those taking notes. I quote it often. 
volume 5 of the Testimonies to the Church, page 81. You want to write that down if you care. It says in volume 5 of the Testimonies to the Church, page 81, it says the time is not far distant when the test will come to every soul. It says the mark of the beast will be urged upon us and those who have step by step been yielding to worldly demands and conforming to worldly customs. It's amazing how there was a time, brothers and sisters, you would never see a young black man wearing his pants, hanging off his backside and letting his underwear show. But when that worldly custom came to that community and they beheld it and because they did not have a foundation, before you know it, it became a fashion and now it is out of control. To the point that it's not just young black men, but it's young Asian men, white men, and every other kind of man. Everybody's doing it now. And they think it's cool. Worldly custom. Constantly yielding to worldly customs. There was a time a young lady could understand that anything that has a heel that's so high that it actually deforms your back when you walk, obviously would be something that you shouldn't go around wearing. But when that worldly custom came out first practiced by prostitutes, but now the stilettos and all these other kinds of worldly fashions and worldly customs, now these things have come to our dear daughters and sisters in the church. And they said, that looks nice. That makes me look good, they think. And they adopt. Brothers and sisters, if you find that every time a new fashion comes out, you're jumping into it. There's a new pants out now for, 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 for men called skinnies. And people will wear, they wear these strange fashions. They will go ahead and practice these strange games. They will go ahead and some of these... It is amazing to me. What hurts me most is that it's not just people in the world. It's young people in the remnant. We were called to be the head and not the tail. We were called to be the example. We are the priests of the world. And here it is that when the world looks at us, they say, you eat like us, drink like us, dress like us, act like us, behave like us, entertain like us. Why in the world should I listen to your message? Oh, brother, we're going to talk about these things throughout these studies. I'm serious. My point is, we're in trouble. There's an experience that we're supposed to be entering into right now so that we can get ready for this very real final crisis. I want you to see something here. In the book Evangelism 196, it says the theme of greatest importance is the third angel's message. Brothers and sisters, do you understand? Do you, when we look at the world and when we look at the condition of our church, oh, wait a minute, hold on now. Thank you, Holy Spirit. I didn't complete the rest of that quote. In volume 5 of the Testimonies, page 81, it says the time is not far distant when the test will come to every soul. The mark of the beast will be urged upon us. That's the test. And it says, and those who have step by step yielded to worldly demands and conformed to worldly customs will not find it a hard matter to yield to the powers that be. Rather than suffer the dangers of imprisonment, persecution, exile, and death. She says, at that time, many a star that we have admired for their brilliancy will go out in darkness. Do you know that Brother Lemon is not a man of God because he knows how to put together scriptures and spirit of prophecy quotes? That doesn't make me a man of God. Often people will say, Brother, you're a man of God. And so I said, listen, a donkey can preach a good sermon. Satan can preach a powerful sermon. A man is not a man of God, a woman is not a woman of God, simply because they know how to put together letters, phrases, and verbs. An individual is a child of God when their lives are surrendered to Jesus Christ. When they live their message, that's a child of God. And there are many brilliant stars, brothers and sisters, that's going to go out, and that's why this is not the time for you all to get starstruck. You, can't, you know one time my wife and I, we went out somewhere, and when we went out, I lied to you. True story. We went to a certain venue, and the people did not know who my wife was. So when they came to my wife, they kind of rudely asked her, you know, can you move aside and all this other stuff and everything, and just kind of moved her out of the side so they could do what they have to do. But then somebody happened to say, Sister Lemon. And the person kind of moving out the side said, oh, Sister Lemon? Dwayne Lemon? You're Dwayne Lemon's wife? She said, yes. Sister Lemon. Now, brothers and sisters, that's wrong. If her name was Sister Lemon or Sister Donut, it doesn't matter. 
she's a child of God. You don't treat people certain ways because of who they are, by a name. People have done this thing, and believe it or not, I wish you would read volume one of the testimonies where it talks about complimenting and flattering ministers. Do you know that that's the worst thing you can do? Ellen White says, never, ever, ever tell a minister to his face all these flattering and wonderful words you think of them. Why? Because we're flesh. We can't handle that. We can't handle praise. We're not designed to handle it. All you got to do is praise God for the message and pray for the minister. That's what you need to do. Because many a star that we have admired for their brilliancy are going to go out in darkness. She says in volume 5 of the Testimonies, page 136, she says, at the time when the law of God is most despised, she says, when the great majority forsake us. They're going to turn away from this truth. Many who name the name of Seventh-day Adventists are going to turn away from this message. Why? Because they didn't allow it to become a corresponding experience in their life. Last one, Great Controversy 608. As the storm approaches, a large class, a large class, a large class of those who have professed faith in the third angel's message, but who were not sanctified by obedience to the truth, will abandon their position. Join ranks with the opposition. Become the most bitterest enemies of their former brethren. Can you imagine that many people that we're saying happy Sabbath to right now, either we or they may become not just our enemy, our greatest enemy. Why? Because they didn't enter into the experience. That's why this is so important, what we're studying. Let's go on. She says, the theme of the greatest importance is the third angel's message, embracing the messages of the first and second angel's messages. So like I told you, when we herald the third, we are embracing what? The first and the second. Now, we are called to give the third angel's message because we can see that both the world and the church is in a crisis. I went to Romania and I sat down with the, uh, the president there and we sat down and, and we talked and we were talking about um, our conference president in, in, in Romania and I sat down with him and we were talking about doing a meeting on revival and reformation and I sat down with some of his staff and I had an associate minister with me and we were there and we were talking about doing revival and reformation at their church or at a conference, a big conference. And the, one of the first things that I asked him, I said, so, so are you in agreement with what Elder Ted Wilson uh, has called us to do in relation to bringing about a revival and reformation in the church. They said, yes. I said, so you do understand that the church is dead. And boy, I tell you, it's like you should have seen the shock on some of their faces because it was a staff of them. And they looked at me like, what do you mean? I said, well, by the very definition of revival, it means that something is dying or dead. So if you say that you believe the church needs revival, you recognize that the church is dying or dead. Stop breathing. And therefore, you can't give it the same message that it's been giving that perhaps may have assisted them to be in that dead state. You're going to need to give them a message that will startle them and bring life inside of them. So I just wanted to prepare them for what was going to come if they brought me in. Well... The third angel's message is designed to do that. Now, look at this quote here. Now, this quote, this has become one of my favorite quotes in all the spirit of prophecy. God's purpose, manuscript release, book one, page 228. God's purpose in giving the third angel's message to the world is to prepare a people to stand true to him during the investigative judgment. Do you know that's the whole purpose of the third angel's message? To prepare a people to stand true to God during the investigative judgment. That's the whole purpose of the third angel's message. That's the whole purpose why GYC or anything else is put together. Look at this. This, this is the purpose for which we establish and maintain our publishing houses. Do you know that not a book should come out of our publishing houses that's not, that does not teach people how to stand true to God during the investigative judgment? I become very fearful of some of the books that sometimes our call porters and canvassers are sharing with people that talk about all sorts of stuff but does not necessarily help people know how to stand true to God during the investigative judgment. It says our schools. Do you know the whole purpose of a Seventh-day Adventist school 
is that not one student would leave there not knowing how to stand true to God during the investigative judgment. It is possible to get a Ph.D. from one of our schools and not know how to stand true to God during the investigative judgment. And that's because of that, that lack of focus. Satan, he says, I, I don't want their names to remain. I've got to break the cycle. And all brothers and sisters, he's done several methods to try to do it. But look at it. It says our sanitariums. Do you know that many sanitariums today can actually teach a sick sinner how to become a healthy, vibrant, strong sinner? You think that was God's purpose of raising up a sanitarium? You think God wanted us to teach sick sinners how to become strong sinners? No. When a person comes to a sanitarium, they're supposed to come in sick sinners and leave healthy saints. I spoke at one of our sanitariums and I literally told them, I said, it is better for somebody to come here with cancer and leave with cancer with Jesus than somebody to come here with cancer and leave without cancer and not know how to stand true to God during the investigative judgment. Hygienic restaurants, treatment rooms, and food factories. This is our purpose in carrying forward every line of work in the cause. All these booths that are here, one purpose. How does my ministry at this booth help people know how to stand true to God during the investigative judgment? If any of the booths don't do that, that booth is doing the work, but it's not doing the final work. It's not going to finish the work. You see, Jesus is obsessed with finishing the work. Let me show you John 4. Go there with me. John, the fourth chapter. John 4. Let me show you. Jesus, Jesus, he was obsessed with finishing the work. Notice what the Bible says. I'm going to show you why he was obsessed with it. That's why I use the word obsessed. I'm going to show you why I use that. Because I'm going to show you what Jesus denied that many of us sometimes (laughs) we don't deny. John, the fourth chapter, if you're there, say amen. Watch this now. John chapter 4. In John 4, this is what the Bible says. The Bible says in John, the fourth chapter, and if you're there, say amen. Amen. Now, the Bible says in John 4, you remember Jesus meets this woman at the well, and he's, you know, dialoguing with her, and of course, he eventually introduces himself as the Messiah, and he brings life to her. He talks about that wonderful living water. And of course, she's excited about it, and she runs away, but as Jesus was working, he forgot to do something eat. He didn't eat. He was working so hard and he was, he was so busy in the salvation of souls that it was more important than his necessary food. To the point that, notice what the Bible says. Look at it, John 4. It says in verse uh, 31, in the meanwhile, his disciples prayed him saying, Master, eat. They wanted them to eat food. Listen, you know, I understand you love people, but you got to eat. And he says, but in verse 32, but he said unto them, I have meat to eat that ye know not of. What was this meat? Look what it says. Verse 33, therefore said the disciples one to another, hath any man brought them all to eat? In verse 34, here's the answer. Jesus saith unto them, my meat is to do the will of him that sent me and to finish his work. That's the focus of Jesus. The focus of Jesus is not to hang out. The focus of Jesus is not to say, oh, let's start planning GYC 2015. Amen. You know, every, every meeting that, whether it's GYC, Army, or any other group, you know, what the meet, you know one of the chief focuses should be in that meeting? How can we make this the last conference? Can you imagine if that, if that kind of question was entertained in the board meeting? I'm not saying they didn't. I don't know. But can you imagine that in all of our ministries and everything, that when we get together, how can we make this the last conference? That the work could go for Heaven is in, it, brothers and sisters, it is almost as if, and I say it as reverently as I can, it is almost as if Jesus is in relay race position to come bring us home. We are holding him up. Jesus says, my focus is to finish the work. And then go to John 17. Look what it says here, John 17 now. John, the 17th chapter. I love this. 
Because Jesus didn't just have a desire. You know, Steps to Christ, page 48, says many will be lost while hoping and desiring to be Christians. Steps to Christ, page 48. It says many will be lost while hoping and desiring to be Christians. So it was Jesus' focus and it was Jesus' desire to finish the work. But you know what Jesus was able to say as he was about to close? Notice what it says in John 17 and verse 4. John 17 and verse 4, the Bible says, I have glorified thee on the earth. And look at this wonderful statement. What does he say? I have finished the work which thou gavest me to do. You've got to be able to say that. Paul said it, didn't he? He said, I finished my course. Every single one of you have a work. There's something that God has created and put inside of you that you can do that not one speaker in this conference can do. There's a work that God wants you to do. So Jesus is just simply setting principles for each of us to say, this needs to be the spirit behind your work. This needs to be the focus of your work. He says you must finish the work. It's the herald of the third angel's message that's going to finish it. And brothers and sisters, if the focus of any of your ministries or any of the works or the efforts that you do, if you can look back and assess it and say, is it helping the people stand true to God during the investigative judgment or am I just selling a product and making some cash? It's possible that people can get in ministry because it's the in thing to make some money. That's possible. It's a perversion, but it's possible. God wants us to understand the focus needs to be, to finish the work. And Jesus says, I finished it. And that's why when Jesus was on that cross and he was breathing his last breath, what was the last words that come out of his mouth? It is finished. Christ wants to do that with us. Now I want to show you something Watching this clock here. Go to Luke 21. Luke 21. In Luke, the 21st chapter, our goal is to show people how to stand true to God during the investigative judgment. And then our goal is to make sure we're true to God. Wouldn't it be a tragedy to help others be true and then we're not? That's like what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 9:27. Though I preach to others, I myself must make sure I'm not a castaway. That would be a tragedy to go ahead and help everybody else get ready. And then here it is. We're not ready. So the best sermons that can be given are the ones that first you're living. The best principles to share with others are obviously principles that you've already embraced. So then that way you are not an actor. Every time you read in Matthew chapter 23 where Jesus says, woe to you Pharisees, hypocrites. When you look up the word hypocrite in the Greek, the word means actor. Woe to you Pharisees, actors. God doesn't want you to be an actor. God doesn't want you to go around saying, happy Sabbath, praise the Lord, when you know that you got cussing, swearing upon your lips and your mind. God says, no, I want, you to, I want you to experience this power. And then as you experience it, then you'll be better equipped to give it to others. Keep your finger on Luke 21. Do you want to really see success in evangelism? Are we to do evangelism? Are we to go out and win souls? Can I show you one of the greatest ways that God gave us on how to do it? Deuteronomy chapter 4. Let me show you, if there's any pastors in this room, I want to show you how you can save some money on your next evangelistic campaign. If we did this, we'd save thousands. Deuteronomy chapter 4. This is God's formula on how to win souls and, 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 and bring the truth out to people. Notice this. Deuteronomy chapter 4. I love it. Now, I want you to see how God words this out now because this is, this is very powerful. Bear with me just one second. Just trying to get this done. Yep. Deuteronomy 4, starting at verse 1. The Bible says, Now therefore hearken, O Israel, unto the statutes and unto the judgments which I teach you for to what? Do them. So God says, I never gave you commandments to know them. I gave you commandments that you can know them and do them. That's what God always gave the commandments for. That's why God gave instructions. He wanted his people not to just know it, but do it. 
When you read Desire of Ages, page 309, it says the great mistake of the Pharisees is that they thought that an intellectual understanding of truth constituted righteousness. So they understood a lot, but practiced very little. And that's why Matthew 23, Jesus says, do what they say, but not as they do. Remember Jesus said that about the Pharisees? Because he understood. They talk a lot, but they're not living it. So therefore, God says, when I give you these statues, these judgments and so on, he says, I give it to you that you might do them. Amen? Now watch this. Verse, uh, verse 1 again. Uh, For to do them that you may live and go in, the, go in and possess the land which the Lord God of your fathers giveth you. You shall not add unto the word which I command you, neither shall ye diminish aught from it, that ye may keep the commandments of the Lord your God, which I command you. So do you see once again that there's a cooperation? God is telling us what to do, and then he's saying, I want you to cooperate, and I want you to keep it or do it. You seeing that? All right, verse 3. Your eyes have seen what the Lord did because of Baal Peor for all the men that followed Baal Peor, the Lord thy God hath destroyed them from among you. But ye that did cleave unto the Lord your God are alive every one of you this day. Behold, I have taught you. Now look at this, this is sweet. Behold, I have taught you statutes and judgments, even as the Lord my God commanded me, that ye should do so in the land whither ye go to possess it. Verse 6, keep therefore and do them, for this is your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the nations. When you go into this land and when the nations, when the people see how you're living out your message. Watch this. Verse 6 again. Keep therefore and do them, for this is your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the nations, which shall hear all these statutes and say, surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. When people can see your message before they even hear your message, by time you speak your message verbally, after you have already demonstrated your message in your lifestyle, it says they will say, surely, this is a wise and understanding people. You want to know the great problem of why so many people are still hindering and, and struggling with Adventism? It's because they say, man, these guys just told us about this whole mark of the beast, buying, selling thing. And then they go ahead and look at our lives and they say, man, they're living on Mr. Visa and Mrs. MasterCard and Brother Discover just like us. They look as unprepared as we are. As if God did not give us a message on how to practically prepare for the final crisis through country living. Amen. People begin to look at us and they say, okay, they're talking about all these different ways that the Spirit of God touches an individual's heart and no one experiences true revival without true reform. But when I sit in their car, I hear the worldly beats to the Christian music. They say, man, they, they, they're, 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 they're copying us. And they're doing a cheap copy because brothers and sisters, I'm going to tell you right now, I would never listen to hip-hop gospel. If I'm going to do it, I'm going to go all out because I'm going to get my reward at the end anyhow. I'm not going to listen to no hip-hop gospel. If I want hip-hop that bad, I'm just going to go to hip-hop. That's ridiculous. It makes no sense. Either you're for Christ or you're against him. There is no middle ground. And so Christ says, listen, you and I need to understand that if we live the message, if we embrace the message, if we receive the message in our heart and actually live it, people will be that much more prepared to hear you. And they will say, as they see that lifestyle connected to the message, they will say, surely this is a wise and understanding people. This economic crisis comes, but they all seem to be living like kings and queens. Did you know that that's from inspiration? We're told that there's a way that we can live, even in a financial crisis, where we will be looked upon, even by the world, as kings and queens. If we would just follow our message. Luke 21. Final points, Luke 21. All right, watching that time. In Luke 21, we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna break here. we got quite a bit. So we'll break here because I believe it was 50 minutes, and I'm approximately there right now. So we're going to go to Luke 21, and then what we'll do is we'll come back. Now, if you have to go someplace, I respect that. But nevertheless, we're going to come back and continue on this because, like I told you, this is stepping stones. We're building up. 
We're building up. In Luke, the 21st chapter, in order for us to stand true to God, something has to happen. It's spelled out really nice in Luke 21. In Luke 21 and verse 36, notice what the Bible says. After Jesus warns about various harbingers of end-time events, he says in Luke 21 and verse 36, it says, Watch ye therefore, and do what? And pray always that ye may be accounted what? Worthy to escape all these things that shall come to pass and to stand before the Son of Man. What's the whole focus of the third angel's message? To prepare a people to stand true to him during the investigative judgment. You see, in this first session, we're talking about what are you praying for? What or who are you praying for? And I want you to understand that while we can pray about many things, if you need a home, you can pray about that. If you need a vehicle, you can pray about that. If you need to pass a certain exam or test, you can pray about all those things. But brothers and sisters, I believe that there's a tremendous priority even in the mind of Christ when it comes to prayer. Jesus says, one of the things I want you to do is I want you to watch and to pray always that you may be accounted worthy. to stand and go through all these things and stand before the Son of Man. The only way that's going to happen is not going to be by natural might nor by natural power. It's only going to be by God's Spirit. It's the only way you're going to stand. How in the world are we going to stand true to God during the investigative judgment so that we can stand before that wonderful Son of Man and Hear him say, or hear us say, Lo, this is our God and we have waited for him? Brothers and sisters, the only way this is going to happen is through the outpouring of God's Holy Spirit. And we're going to talk about that. And it's going to be through the early and the latter rain. It's a building block. And so in this session number one, we've gotten to the point thus far where we see that there's a tremendous crisis coming. It's here. And it's going to swell. The world is unprepared, and quite honestly, based on the quotations of prophetic utterance, we can see that to a very large degree in the present state of our church, our church is unprepared. If our church was prepared, there'd be no reason for these conferences. So therefore, we are in a crisis. Now, what God wants to do is he wants to prepare us. And that's why we've been looking through these things. And we've learned a lot just in this session. Amen? Amen? So now what we need to do is find out practically, Lord, how can I really stand true to you? During this investigative judgment, how can I stand true to you? And God is going to show us step by step how to do it. So we're going to pray right now. And we're going to close out. We're going to take, I believe they said to take about a five minute break. And then we're going to come back. There are going to be some very special handouts that I want to give to uh, as many of you as possible. There's quite a bit of you in this class. And I didn't know what to expect. So therefore, um, I'm probably not going to have a copy for everyone But there's going to be something very special that I want to give to you, and then we're going to talk about it at the end of one of the classes. Um, But at this time, I want to ask as much as you are able to, let's kneel together. We're going to pray out on this session, and then we're going to pick back up in our next session to see how the Lord will continue to instruct us and guide us on how we can truly be a people prepared to meet our God. Our loving Father, We are so grateful that you have awakened us again to your truth. You have blessed us, Lord. You have given us understanding. You have truly opened our eyes and helped us to behold wondrous things out of thy law. We realize that the majority of the people in this world are going to wonder after the beast. But you have shown us that if our names remain, we will be counted amongst those who will truly keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. And Lord, we realize that the only way this can happen is by overcoming. And another way of saying overcoming is standing true to you. And so, Lord, I pray, continue to abide with us in these studies. Help us to see our need for the Holy Spirit. Because there's no way in the world that we will be able to stand in and of ourselves as we see this final crisis about to break forth and take the majority of this people in the world and in the church as an overwhelming surprise. Please, God, keep us faithful. Speak to our hearts. Help us, Lord, to commune with thee during this solemn assembly. And let not our will but thy will be done, we pray in Jesus' name.
Amen. This message was recorded by Fountain View Productions for GYC. GYC, a supporting ministry of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, seeks to inspire and equip young people to be vibrant, Bible-based, and Christ-centered Christians. To download or purchase other resources, visit us online at gycweb.org.